Amen. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and uh, that you are unstoppable and you do all things well. We pray that you would this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Midland Free. Hey, my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're so glad that you're worshiping together with us today. Uh, I hope you've had a great summer and are adjusting to the transition of fall and school and two services and everything else. Last weekend, my family and I did what perhaps a lot of Midland families have done this summer. We took advantage of the opportunity to go down to the rail trail, enjoy the beautiful weather, and take a bike ride out to the nature center. But as you know, my foot's been a bit bummed up this year, and so we hadn't done a whole lot of bike rides up until that point. So with four bikes and one cart and ten wheels, you can imagine all of them were flat. And so that means... Dad's got to go out to the garage and get them all pumped up again. And I'm moving through the tubes and tires pretty well. And I get to my wife's and it's like, oh, man. Tire deflated, dad deflated. (laughs) Hold on, everybody. Don't worry. We got this. We're just going to delay it a little bit longer. And you see mom go, oh, boy. Hold on to those kiddos. Actually, you take one with you. All right. I'll do it. You don't want to stay home with two boys. That's dangerous. Take one with you. Off you go. So grab a boy, jump in the van, load up the bike, down to the bike store. At the bike store, praise be to God, they were able to help us right away and get the tube, you know, the bike up on the rack and the tubes getting switched out and all this and all that. And, of course, while they're fixing it, my son and I are wandering around the store looking at all the cool stuff and kind of oohing and on. And if, if you may or may not know this, uh, in a bike store, bikes are very expensive. So the entry level like bike store bike is like $800. And then a pretty normal standard racing type bike is at least $2,000. So we're looking at these bikes. Oh, this one's pretty cool. Yeah, I like this one, this and that, and this and that. And eventually I say, hey, hey, Ezra, come here. I want to show you something. So we go over to the wall, you know, and there's that one bike that's hanging up on the wall. I'm like, check this out. And I turn over the ticket, and he's like, wow, $1,200. I'm like, no. Read it again, buddy. He's like, $12,000. Like, we'll take two. <laughs> Just kidding. Nowhere close. Let's get the tube and get out. Right? Wow, $12,000 for this bike. Whoa. Buy a new car for that. I think I can go faster in my car than my bike. (laughs) Pretty sure. But here's this amazing bike, and here we are, and out the door we go. Well, imagine if your lives were a bit different, and instead of going down to the Tridge on your regular old bikes, instead you plan the ultimate bike ride. You're not going down to the Tridge and out to the Nature Center. Instead, you're driving across the bridge, not the Tridge, but the Mackinac Bridge, all the way out and going to the island, taking the ferry. you got your favorite stops planned along the way, the fudge, traverse, cherries, all of the things. You're ready to go. And then, along the way, on this amazing vacation, after you have everything lined up and all the bikes packed on the back, you're driving down the highway, 75 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, clunk, 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 clunk. and you're just scared to look in that rearview mirror. 
Kids turn around, everybody's screaming. You know what happened. The bikes just came off the back. And they are now crashed and tumbling down the road. And for most of the bikes, that's pretty okay because they're a you know, big box store bike and they don't cost that much. But you had that one daughter who was really into racing and it was a really big thing. And she worked all summer long babysitting, paper route, saving her money. And she finally got that $2,000 bike that she always wanted. And there it went down the side of the road. Tears are filling the van. Everyone's upset. This great American vacation that was planned is now about to go out the window. And dad is just sitting there sweating, thinking, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Everybody's crying. Dad pulls over. And he says, now listen, 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 listen. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. We're going to salvage this thing. We'll get there. We'll rent bikes for everybody. We'll still have a good time, and eventually we'll get that other bike taken care of. Don't worry. I promise. I got a plan. It's going to be okay. There's a lot of crying and sniffling going on, but eventually the tears can't last forever. Everybody gets in the van. Off they go. No one really is that sure or believing whether dad can save this thing or not, but what choice do they have? He's driving. He's got the keys. Here we go. So back in the van they go down the road. What happens in this situation, I think, is that the person who is suffering, especially the one who lost their favorite bike, is driven to despair. They're suffering. They've lost something that they loved, that they invested in, that was of value to them, that fit them very well. And now it's gone. And it seems like the destruction of that thing can never be overcome. Yet, the dad in his grace is sitting there assuring them, I love you. I promise it's going to be okay. Have I ever lied to you before? No, no, no. But uh, it just doesn't make me feel that much better yet. What do they do? Well, the only thing that they can do at that point, really, is to believe the dad. They don't have any hope based on their present circumstances. The bikes are destroyed. The only hope is for the future. And what he's telling them is true. Such is the case today in Revelation chapter 1 as we take a little bike ride through the first eight verses. We're going to journey through the first three chapters over the next few months up until Advent. And what we'll see is this thing with life that all of us experience, that there's a problem. And that problem with life is that suffering drives us to despair. We all suffer in different ways. We all struggle And it does the same thing. It drives us to despair. The solution, however, that God provides is this. That he assures us that even though we're suffering now, there will be a reckoning. There will be a vindication that in the end, everything will be okay. And the application for us then, in the midst of suffering, there's only one thing we can do. And that's double down on that assurance. Really lean in to the promises that he gives That's important for us, and that's important for the people of first century too. In first century Rome, in the original setting, when the people of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, were receiving this letter, at the time, it was actually illegal to be a Christian. Instead, the official state religion was emperor worship. As a result, anyone who didn't worship the emperor was literally thrown to the lions. They became meat for Caesar's pets. 
The Apostle John is delivering a message to those people under those circumstances saying, hey, hang in there. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. I promise. It's true that Domitian wants to feed you to his lions, but the emperor is nothing compared to the Almighty. The emperor is nothing compared to the Almighty. In the end, God wins, which is going to be awesome for you and absolutely terrible for them. In the end, God wins. And so once again, guess what the theme is for this book? Hey, slide. You got it. Jesus wins. Exactly right. The theme for the book of Revelation is Jesus wins. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that the theme for the book of Mark was Jesus wins? (laughs) Yes, and in fact, I might even be able to preach that from every book of the Bible. That Jesus wins. But in this case, I think I'm not too far off track because what happens is in the book of Mark, during the time of Nero, here's a picture of him. All right, good. In the first service, we didn't have slides. And I said, here's a picture of Nero. And it was me. (laughs) That didn't work, so that wasn't what I was going for. Here's a picture of Nero. Most of the time, these statues, you can only find their heads or you can find a headless statue. The reason is because the emperor that follows after him, guess what they do? Knock off the head. <laughs> you know? That guy's done. We got to put my statue up. So that's what these people did. Here's the statue. Here's the head of Nero. He ruled in 65 AD, which is the time the Gospel of Mark is being written. So he's torturing Christians left and right. It's his favorite pastime. In fact, he'd wrap them in animal skins and pale them on a pole and light them up for his garden. That's what he thought was cool. This guy was crazy. And so as a result, um, what happens is Mark's writing to some Roman Gentile Christians. He's pointing to the suffering servant, Jesus, saying, look, he suffered just like you did in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. Moreover, if you look at Jesus' life, even though it looks like he's losing, He's actually winning. Look at all these things. He's baptized, and then he goes out in the wilderness, and he encounters Satan, and he beats him, and then there's diseases that have never been, you know, overcome, and he heals them, and then there's demons, and they fall down at his feet, and then they run away, and then there's the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they try to trip him, and they can't get him, and it looks like every single instance he's in, all of a sudden, Jesus wins. So for you who are suffering under Nero, the book of Mark says, Jesus wins. Now, fast forward 30 years later, and you're under a different emperor. This guy's name is Domitian. Here's a picture of him. Um, He has his nose cracked in. That was probably by his wife. Actually, you know what? His wife had him assassinated. That's how bad it was for this guy. The only person brave enough to finally do him in was someone from the Praetorian Guard. It's like the uh, secret service of the uh, Roman Empire, and they killed him because his wife wanted him dead. Apostle John is writing to the recipients of Asia Minor under the rule of Domitian. And what's happening is that instead of like Mark, who reviews Jesus' life in the past, saying, okay, this is what was happening in the past. Instead, Mark is going to look forward. So, Sorry, John looks forward. Mark looks back. John looks forward. So John points to what Jesus will do in the future in his return, his new creation, and his eternal state. 
John looked at the past, the death, burial, resurrection. John, uh, sorry, Mark looked at the past, the death, burial, and resurrection. John looks at the future, the return, the new creation, and the eternal state. So at the end of the day, the theme is still the same. Very similar situations, but the same theme that Jesus wins. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, whether they're on your phone or one of ours or whatever, uh, please feel free to follow along. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 1. This is the first eight verses, the introduction or the prologue from the apostle to the people. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. There's actually a transmission there. It goes from God the Father to God the Son to the angel to the apostle to the people. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy... And blessed are everyone in this room, those who hear, and especially those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, says, Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is three things. Number one, the faithful witness... Number two, the firstborn among the dead. And number three, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now behold, look, see, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. And it is signed, sort of, yours truly, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, problem, solution, application. Problem is that suffering drives us to despair. Let me give you a picture of what these folks were going through at the time. This is the ruins of a temple of Domitian in Ephesus, one of the churches in Asia Minor. Um, You can go there and visit it today if you so choose. But inside that temple, now it's not there now, it's inside a museum, but inside that temple you would find this, the altar of Domitian. And upon that altar, you would be required to offer libations or sacrifices to the Roman emperor. And if you did not, well, off with your head or out to the lions or whatever they decide to do to you. Now today, obviously, our situation is quite a bit different. Fortunately for us, we're in a country where we have the freedom of worship. We can come here, sit comfortably, enjoy air conditioning, coffee, and nice clothes and a good place to worship God. But back then it was a lot tougher. And so when you hear about these stories, sometimes you think, how in the world can I ever get upset for suffering about anything? I mean, how shallow or how small am I? 
I've got modern medicine, I've got education, I have clothing, clean water, health care. What, what's the issue? Yet at the same time, I think if we're honest, we all admit that even today we still suffer a lot. People are driven to despair. You see it in their uh, drug abuse. You see it in addictions. You see it in crime. You see it in depression. You see it in suicide. You see it all over the place. Still, even today, with everything we have, we suffer like crazy. Life, despite all of our technological advances, has not gotten easier. In fact, what we discover is in some ways more difficult. Suffering makes it easy for us to give in to defeat and fail to affirm the promises of God. Suffering makes it easy to lose our perspective. And what happens is when we lose our perspective, then we're disoriented. Once we are disoriented, then we lose our way. And once we lose our way, we get lost. And once we are lost, we have no hope. What then do we do? Some of us think, well, you know, the Bible people, they had it a lot easier because like Abraham and Moses and David, God like spoke to them. If God would just come and speak to me, man, then it would be easy. I'd get it all, I'd be like, wow, cool, heard you, God, sure. But look at how God speaks to them. To Abram, he says, get up and go to a land that I'll show you. That's it. Abram has no idea everything he's going to face in front of him. What about Moses? Moses, he says, go and tell my people, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Was that it? (laughs) Moses just walked in one day and said, hey, uh, Pharaoh, God says, let him go. Good. All right. Did it. Done. Now we're close. You got plagues and Red Sea and wilderness wandering. Absolute misery for the next 40 plus years. What about David, the greatest king of Israel? God comes and says, oh, I'm going to make you king. Sweet. When do I start? Actually, you need to run for your life from a madman for quite a bit of time before it ever starts. <laughs> Good luck. All of these people, man, they're given these revelations, and yet their lives are filled with suffering. They have this long path to go through. What about us? Well, such is the case with us in a lot of ways. But the way God does it is, in fact, he reveals more to us then he even is revealed to them. Here's what happens in the book of Revelation. The very first word, when I say that revelation, that actually tells you something. The Greek word for revelation is actually apocalypse. Now, I know when you hear the word apocalypse, you think of like doomsday scenarios, post-World War III, nuclear bomb, big mess, trying to live off rats cooked on a stick or something like that. That's apocalypse, Right? Actually, apocalypse, the original word, simply means a revealing or an unveiling. And it's showing you something you didn't see before. It's a drawing back of the curtain, revealing the mystery of God. Here's what it would be in our bicycle story. So let's say you're, you know, you've, you just had that experience, the bike is off, kids are crying, they get down the road a little bit further, and all of a sudden the crying starts up again. And it's going so hard, dad can't concentrate, can't drive, he has to pull over. And he says, no, look, 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 hang on, hang on. I know what I said before, and it's all true, that when we get there, we're going to rent some bikes for your mothers, brothers, sisters, and everything. But I have a little something special for you. You who lost the bike, guess what? I didn't tell you this, because I wanted it to be a surprise. I was holding back. But 
now it's become clear that I need to reveal it to you. I need to apocalypse it to you. And so I'm going to show you something. When we get there, actually waiting on the other side is a brand new bike. But not just any bike. Do you remember that $12,500 bike that was up on the wall? That day that you bought your bike, I was so proud of you for all the hard work you put into it, how you babysat, how you saved, how you did everything. I thought, man, I just want to reward that. And so at that moment, I started saving for this next bike. And now at your next birthday, guess what you get? For the inaugural ride, the first time ever in paradise, Mackinac Island, your $12,500 bike. Hang on. As soon as we get there, I promise, it's waiting at the other side. That's an apocalypse. That's when the father is saying to the daughter, I, have, I know you spent a lot on this one thing, but I have something so much better for you. See, that's what's happening in our lives, folks. We spend so much time investing in this life. Man, I got to do my house, my car, my body, my family, my this, my that. And boy, we like it because we put a lot into it. We really love it because we think it fits us. But at the end of the day, that thing is passing away. It's being smashed. It's rolling along the side of the highway. And we're crying over it. And yet God is saying, stop right there. I have something so much better for you on the other side. You have no idea. Just leave it to me. Trust. Believe. Let me show you what is to come. This is an apocalypse. He does more than that too though. He, he goes a little bit further. Verse 3. So verse 1 says it's an apocalypse. It's a revelation. Verse 3 says it's a prophecy. So we know that it's a prophecy. Verse 3 specifically says it's a prophecy. And what a prophecy is, is essentially this. It's a bit of a map. And... Various prophecies provide various details depending on what they are. But let's just say Revelation is like this. And what it does is it says, okay, you're right here. Now you're suffering, enduring under this. But the future is up here. And there's a few things you're going to have to go through in order to get there. And you don't exactly know what they are along the way. You don't know what the weather is going to be like. You don't know what sort of opposition you will encounter. You don't know how long... This is actually going to take you, but you know that you're right here and you will eventually get there. And I promise, since we're here, as we go through here and we hit these little stops, you'll recognize the markers along the way. And as you do that, eventually, you'll get where I've planned for us to go. So what you have then is you have an apocalypse and a prophecy. So you have an unveiling in an unrolling of a plan. And so in other words, the problem is suffering. You're crying because your bike just got destroyed. But the father comes to you and says, hold on, I want to show you something in the future and then I'm going to tell you how we're getting here. That's what provides your assurance. So in life, when you're suffering, suffering, what you need is an apocalypse and a prophecy. Or said like this in a formula, here's how it works. An apocalypse Plus a prophecy, this is as fancy as my math gets, hang on, is an assurance of an outcome. You get this guarantee because it's showing you, I'm going to unveil this and I'm going to give you this plan. And as a result, this is what the outcome will be. In other words, again, back to our original structure, life has this issue, this problem, this suffering that drives us to despair. God provides a solution 
of vindication. And that is this prophecy, this apocalypse that the apostle is giving us. Then for us, we who are in that situation, our only answer is to double down or lean in heavily to that prophecy. One more page. Hang on. So don't stare at the dot, no matter where you're at on the map, but lean in to the prophecy. Here's how it works. The Gospel of Mark looks back, the the book of Revelation looks forward, and our job is to do the same. So let's say you're suffering or you're struggling with something right now. It's all different for everybody in this room. What am I going to do? I'm going to look back to the cross and I'm going to look forward to the crown. And the reason I can do that is this. Craig Keener says in his commentary, this is what's really cool about an omnipresent or an everywhere present God, that the past and the future are embraced in God's eternal presence. In other words, because we are within the space-time continuum, we're looking at things like, all right, we're just in this spot. But God is way outside of it. He sees the beginning and the end as the alpha and the omega. And as a result, what we have to do is step back and say, okay, if I focus in on this dot, on this little tiny spot, and I stare at this problem, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But if I pull out and see the map or see the big picture, what I see is by looking at the past and looking at the future, it gives me peace in the present. What God did in the past and what God did in the future gives you peace in the present. So, for example, the first place to look is like Mark shows us is back is to the cross. If you're suffering, Craig Keener says it like this. I I agree very much so. He says, In my times of deepest brokenness, when no sophisticated theological argument could comfort me, my deepest assurance of God's love has been to look at the cross and remember that God himself has shared his pain with me. In other words, when you look at the cross... This is what you see, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. You see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, you realize that he does three things for you on the cross. One, he loves you. Jesus loves you. If you're in this room, Jesus loves you. Here's a funny thing. We sing this song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then you go to, the, you go to seminary someday, and you, all of a sudden you, your professor says to you, where does it say that in the Bible? You look through the Gospels, and it's actually fairly scant and few in between. The only thing you can do is say, well, no greater love has a man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. It doesn't actually say Jesus loves me. What it says is God so loved the world. So it's the love of the Father that drives the work of redemption. But here, at this point in Revelation, it tells us very clearly that Jesus loves you. To Jesus Christ, who loved you, what did he do? He freed you from your sins and made you a kingdom of priests or worshipers to God the Father. When you're struggling in the present, you look back at the cross. When you're struggling in the present, you look forward at the future as well. 
I'll show you a picture. We're going to skip one slide and go to the next one if we got a picture of that crown. Here's an actual crown from the city of Ephesus. It's uh, made out of gold. You can imagine my daughter who loves tiaras and crowns and everything else would love to put something on her head like this. The people of that time would be very familiar what this would look like to the victor, the crown. So in Revelation, what you get in chapter 1 verse 8 is this from Jesus. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and the end, the A and the Z. Who was and is and is to come. And in the future, you will see in verse 5 that Jesus Christ is a faithful witness, the firstborn, and the ruler who will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. So in the past, you see the suffering servant. In the future, you see the conquering king. And putting these two together, the past and the future, the suffering servant and the conquering king, is what allows you to maintain this theology or perspective of suffering. That is why John says in verse 4, grace and peace to you. The grace is communicated to you through the cross. That's how you receive the grace of redemption. The peace is communicated in your present because of your future. Your present may not be very peaceful. The present can be really, really tough. But it's the assurance of the future that gives you peace in the present. So because of the grace past and because of the assurance of the future, there is peace in the present. How can that happen? Well, it's from this eternal almighty God who is and was and is to come everywhere all the time. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the Almighty. He guarantees by his infinite power and limitless resources that at the end, you will be vindicated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves this. He is the firstborn. That's why it always says firstborn, firstfruits, because he's not done. He raised Jesus and he will raise you as well. There's going to be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth all the way out. The problem is that suffering drives us to despair. The solution is that God provides us an assurance. And the application is that we double down. We lean in. We really apply that assurance. Imagine this if we go back to our bike story that the family has now, you know, the tragic accident happened. The bike has been crushed. Everybody's sad. Dad has apocalypsed and prophesied, unveiled what is about to come. They cross the bridge, get to the bike shop. The $12,000 bike with her name on it is taken off and given to her. And the little brother, as all little brothers often do, fill in the gaps and say, boy, dad sure was dumb to let that thing fall off the back. <laughs> well, that was a dumb move, dad. <laughs> that was quite the accident. Good thing he made a mistake, otherwise you wouldn't have got your bike. And then everyone starts to stop for a moment. They're like, wait, how did you, the bike was already, but then that means that you did did you destroy my bike on purpose? What? How? Dad's not saying anything. 
Mom's eyes just went. All of a sudden, daughter's getting mad, and she's starting to poke him in the chest. I love that bike. I work hard for that bike. What are you doing? Dad's like, hang on, hang on. Hold on, hold on. Here's the thing, hon. I, I knew that. I knew how much you love that bike. I knew how hard you worked for that bike. I knew how much you had invested in that bike, and yet I knew how much better that $12,000 bike was. Man, and so I knew that the only way for you to get this $12,000 bike was for me to destroy the $2,000 one. I had to crush it. It was his will to crush him. And it is his will to crush you. And if you're being crushed, that is a good thing. You're in the right spot. That is the perishable being destroyed so that the imperishable can replace it. God knows you love this life. He knows you worked hard. He knows you put a lot into it, your body, your house, your family, your whatever. But it has to go. If it doesn't, you don't get the bike. This is the clay and the potter. And how can we, who are the clay, say back to the potter, what are you doing? He already knows. See, a little girl in the van, she's tempted to say to her dad, either you're stupid because you accidentally forgot to put the pin in, or you're mean because you broke my bike on purpose. You know what happens when we suffer? What do we say to God? You're stupid, you don't care, or you're mean because you did it on purpose. But the reality is, neither of those are true. He knows how much you're into this thing. And he knows how much better it is on the other side. And so he has to get rid of that which is of lesser value to give you that which is so much more. You wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Dad left the pin out on purpose. He didn't make a mistake and he's not mean. He's doing what's right. Revelation shows us that. It opens the curtain. It unveils the future. It tells us what will be. That Jesus wins. Father, we thank you for your only son, Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come. Thank you for taking care of our mess. Thank you for getting rid of even the things that we love. Thank you for having a better future. Lord, we pray that in this present, which seems eternal to us, that you would give us the grace to look back and to look forward, to see the cross and the crown, and trust you for everything that's in between. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.